0: Good morning. Uh, My name is Tara George. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you are just joining us, welcome. Uh, We are so excited that you could join us this morning and you could worship with us and hear from the word. If you are just joining us, we are in a sermon series on the book of 1 John, and we are looking at what is the gospel and what impact does it have on the church and individual believers in particular. And so at the back of your bulletin, you'll find the scripture reading, which is 1 John uh, 2, uh, 12 to 14, and here to read for us is Jenny. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jenny. Every Christian, at some point or another, hits a certain roadblock in their spiritual journey. It is a roadblock that comes about when what we know objectively about the Christian faith and ourselves begins to feel at odds with what we feel subjectively about ourselves and the Christian faith. Maybe we wonder if we are really and truly saved or we question whether we truly know Jesus or have his power at work in our lives. I remember hitting this roadblock around the time when I was in university. I was leading the largest Christian fellowship on campus. I was discipling, teaching, and leading Bible studies weekly. On the outside, my life looked fairly well put together. But on the inside, my faith was in crisis. I found myself still stuck in patterns of sin. I didn't feel fully secure in my salvation. And both of those were compounded by the fact that two of my best friends at the time had just wandered away from the faith. I felt grieved, hopeless, and disillusioned. And so I wrote to an older spiritual mentor for support. I shared with them all of these complex feelings, feelings of hypocrisy, imposter syndrome, anxiety, shame, and powerlessness in the Christian life. And then I waited for his response. To this day, I don't remember exactly what he said in his reply, but I do remember that his email began with 11 simple words. Dear Tark, I am writing to you so that you know. I am writing to you so that you know. And following those 11 words, he proceeded to tell me all that was wonderful, beautiful, and true about the gospel. He told me things that I had forgotten, things that I had neglected, and things that I would overlooked about Jesus and the new life that he had purchased for me. He assured me and told me deep-seated truths about the Christian life that I struggled to believe were true of me and my life at the time. You see, what I needed in the midst of my spiritual crisis was for someone to remind me of what was true. And I think, This is precisely what John is attempting to do for these believers in our passage this morning. As we come to our text today, John, as a spiritual mentor to this church, is writing to assure them about the Christian faith. He's writing to a group of people who are similarly experiencing a crisis. They have believed and trusted in Jesus, and yet they are still struggling with different kinds of sin. They don't feel fully secure in their salvation, and they are wondering if they are really and truly saved. And both of these issues, you see, are compounded by the fact that a number of people in their community have just wandered away from the faith. And it's into that context that John responds with loving and seasoned assurance. He writes to them so that they would know what is truly true about their spiritual lives. He tells them, and I think by extension us, the things that we have probably forgotten, things that we have probably neglected, and things we have probably overlooked about Jesus and the new life that he has purchased for us. Because in this passage, John gives us three words of assurance for the people of this church, and here they are. First, a word to sons and daughters. Second, a word to fathers and mothers. And third, a word to young men and women. Sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, and young men and women. Let's look at this passage together. Well, if you're just joining us, here's what we've covered so far in the book. Uh, John has been teaching this community what it means to believe in Jesus and what it means to live as his followers. And because of the spiritual crisis that I just described earlier, John is writing to assure them of their standing in the Christian faith. Now, what you'll notice as you read this section is that there are three categories of people that John addresses, children, fathers, and young men. Now, we're going to talk about these groups and who they are, but for now, for now, it's important to first point out All of these teachings in verses 12 to 14 are true of all believers. Every single one. According to John, every believer has received the forgiveness of sins. Every believer has received the knowledge of God. And every believer has overcome the evil one, that is Satan. These are spiritual realities that are shared by all of God's people. And that becomes abundantly clear as you go further and further into this letter. However, it does appear that for whatever reason, certain groups of people within the church need to be reminded of certain gospel truths in particular. And so John structures his letter with this in mind. Look with me at our text. John opens this section by first addressing little children. Now, it's possible that John is literally describing the church's kids' ministry, but more than likely, we think this is probably a term of affection for the church as a whole. John actually uses this term five other times in his letter, and in context, we know that he's speaking to everyone, everyone in the church. In other words, he believes that the whole church needs to be reminded of these two truths in particular. He says in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. And again in verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. He's reminding them about what is most fundamental to the Christian faith. Being a Christian means that through faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and you have a relationship with God as your Father. If you are here and exploring the Christian faith, you need to know that these two truths are what set Christianity apart from every other major religion or philosophy. Every major religion can identify that there's a human problem of sin and suffering. But the answer to how they deal with that problem is fundamentally the same. You must try harder, you must be better. You must strive by your own efforts to become truly worthy of some kind of heaven, salvation, or moral standard. And Christianity is the only religion that says, that is rubbish. That is rubbish. There is nothing you can do in and of yourself to be right with God. The debt of your sin is far too great. You and I can't live up to our own moral standards. (laughs) So how much less the standards of a perfect, just, and holy God. Romans 3.23 says this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the human condition, men and women. But here's the good news. The gospel says that your sin doesn't have to be covered up or cleaned up by you. It can actually be forgiven. How? How? John responds with four words, for his name's sake. John is reminding people that God has made a way for sinners to be forgiven and is expressly on account of his son, Jesus. You see, the Bible says that Jesus was fully God and became fully man. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he accomplished our salvation. In his life, he fully satisfied God's moral standard on our behalf. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God that you and I could never live. And then in his death, he took the penalty for our sins so that we might receive God's forgiveness and be reconciled to God when we believe and trust in Him by faith. Just like my friend David did this morning. In short, the gospel says that by faith, we received the love and acceptance of God that Christ deserved, because he received the wrath and anger of God that we deserved. And if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus and come to a point of making that decision, John wants you to know that your sins can be forgiven today for his name's sake. Because listen, one of the beautiful realities of trusting in Jesus is not just that your sins are forgiven, but that you are actually adopted into God's own family. You become His beloved child. And that is a concept that is entirely foreign to any other religion or way. Atheism says God doesn't exist, so why bother? You are just a collection of atoms. Buddhism says that the ultimate reality is some kind of impersonal force. You are just a soul seeking enlightenment. Hinduism acknowledges a great many gods. There are many to choose from, but you are just a devotee. Islam says that God is far too holy and set apart. He is unknowable and impersonal. You are just a servant. There is no other religious or philosophical way that says you can actually know God as personally and intimately as what you find in the Christian faith. And there is no other system that grants you a higher and more dignified view of yourself than what the gospel offers you this morning. The Bible says that you are so much more sinful and corrupt than every other religion says you are. And yet at the same time, miraculously, you are also so much more valuable and treasured by God than any other system of religion can even comprehend. Men and women, the gospel invites you into a rich relationship with God that is predicated not on your spiritual performance, obedience, or worship, but solely on the basis of God's love. As John will write later in chapter three, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Children of God. Grace Toronto, John wants you to know that this is your primary identity. You are not just a disciple or servant or a random collection of atoms. Christian, you are a son or daughter of the King. God is your father, Christ is your brother, the church is your family. John is calling every Christian to have a radical confidence before God in light of his grace and in spite of our sin. He is saying that true children of God don't have to worry about their spiritual standing because of what Jesus has done. When there is a crisis in your spiritual life, The truth about your adoption is meant to be an anchor for your soul, men and women. And that's why you need to hear that God's forgiveness is not a one-time deal. That's not. We know that every Christian has been saved from the power and consequences of sin, yes. But we also know that every Christian will continue to struggle mightily against sin. Throughout the Christian life, you will continually have to throw yourself upon the mercy of God and ask for His forgiveness. There is no question about that. But you will always get it because Christ died for you and you are a child of God. This is your identity, so soak it in. Implications if you want to know whether you truly understand and live out of this childlike identity, here's a good test. Ask yourself, what are the primary emotions I feel when it comes time to confess my sins each Sunday? Because I would wager that how you approach this part of our service every week probably says something about how you relate to this God. If you find yourself feeling apathetic proud or self-assured. It's quite possible that you haven't yet fully understood the gospel and your need for God's forgiveness. You may need to ask God to reveal himself afresh to you and convict you of your sin so that you might see your deep need for him and ask you to do that sincerely. On the other hand, however, on the other hand, if you are feeling anxious, fearful, worthless or condemned as a Christian, it's quite possible that you haven't understood this gospel dynamic either. You may discover that you functionally treat God more like an employer or a judge and less like a father. Grace Serrano, I know that there are many of you here this morning who feel so utterly defeated in the Christian life you are caught in certain patterns of sin just like these early believers and you are convinced that God is fed up with you and his grace is about to run out. It is not. Listen to me very carefully. If you did not earn God's love and acceptance by doing everything right, And neither can you lose God's love and acceptance when you've done something wrong. You cannot have one without the other. It is antithetical to the gospel. The whole reason that you are invited to confess your sins, men and women, is because God the Father is delighted to forgive those sins freely. Christian, you have a relationship with God as a child. You don't ever have to doubt how God feels about you, even at your lowest points in the Christian faith. Because, despite what you may feel, the gospel assures you objectively that you are a child of God, and your Father has forgiven, and will forgive all your sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this is John's first point. You know, secondly, John continues on to address the fathers. He moves on from addressing the community as a whole to now addressing certain members of the community in particular. Now, there are several questions that emerge from this passage, the most obvious of which I think is this. Why is John writing to men only? Well, there are a number of different opinions, and the truth is we're not really sure. Some scholars suggest that John isn't excluding women at all, but he's simply employing the language categories of his day. Masculine nouns were often used to describe mixed groups of men and women. A good comparison would be to the way we use the term you guys in everyday speech. It is a masculine term, but we often use it to refer to a mixed group of men and women. Similarly, it may be that John is including women also when he speaks of fathers and young men, and that is certainly possible. The other opinion is that John may be addressing men specifically by virtue of their role in the family. Biblically and contextually, the husband or father was often regarded as the head of his home. So in context, it could be that John is addressing the male leaders in the community for the sake of their families. Certainly we can agree that when individual families and couples are strong in the faith, it strengthens and benefits the church as a whole. And this might be why John is writing to these particular men in the church, maybe. In the end, we don't really know for sure, but it doesn't really matter. Whatever way you look at it, I think it's fair to say that these teachings either implicitly or explicitly address the women of the church. And so I include them in John's audience. The second question that this section brings up is this, who are these fathers and why is John writing to them? Well, to the best of our knowledge, we don't think that John is speaking to biological fathers and that he hasn't been speaking to biological children. These are likely spiritual categories. Scholars think that John is probably addressing those believers who are spiritually mature in the community or those believers who are simply more elderly. If you want my opinion, I think it's probably both and. I think John is probably speaking to those who are both seasoned in life, but also seasoned in the faith. So if that description fits you, I want you to pay close attention. And if it doesn't fit you, or you're not sure if it does, pay attention anyway. (laughs) Like I said, these are teachings that are true for all God's people but I do think it has a special bearing on certain people in our midst. Because John turns now to address you, fathers and mothers in the faith. In verse 13 to 14, John says to you, I am writing to you, fathers and mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Who is he talking about? Well, John actually describes this person early in his letter. He says this in chapter one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Who is John talking about here? It's Jesus, it's Jesus. He's reminding the fathers and mothers among us that you know Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus? John actually talks about this earlier in chapter two. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, John is saying, that the mark of these spiritual fathers and mothers is that they have a rich and seasoned knowledge of Jesus. But it's not just an intellectual knowledge. They don't just know stuff about him. They obey him and do what he says. In fact, their lives are characterized by walking in the same way that Jesus walked. Translation, Fathers and mothers are these people in the church who have spent years walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's who they are. And I think it's here that we need to pause and ask, why is John singling out these people in particular? Why does their knowledge matter so much for this church? And that is an excellent question. It matters, men and women, because the church John is writing to is in crisis. There is instability in this church and younger, less mature Christians are being troubled, confused, and led astray by false beliefs and foolish behavior. There are younger believers in this church who are struggling in the faith and are falling into all kinds of sin because they don't know any better and they don't have an adequate level of spiritual faith and support. This church needs fathers and mothers. And Newsflash, so does every church, including our own. If you are among the 50 plus age folk who attend our church, I know what you're thinking. I know that at some point you've walked into a church like ours and have felt somewhat out of place. You see young people everywhere and you immediately think to yourself, I'm not sure if I could really fit in here. Maybe this isn't the church for me. Fathers and mothers, with the utmost respect, I am here to tell you that this is the church for you. The lack of older people in our church should convince you that you are desperately needed. We need more fathers and mothers, and we need you. I know that there are some of you elderly fathers and mothers here who feel like you have nothing to offer a young, hip church like Grace Toronto. Can I challenge you on that? Can I challenge you on that? We need you, we really do. You may not have the health, capacity, or even the mobility that you used to have when you were younger by golly, when I meet with you, you give me Jesus like nobody else can. You do. Do not underestimate your value in this family. There are things that you have learned through trials, uncertainty, heartache, and suffering that this younger generation desperately needs to learn from you. Teach us. Mature us. Disciple us. Please. Please. The future of this church depends on that. And by the way, the same goes for a number of you younger fathers and mothers. We need you also. There are a number of you here in the church right now who are both seasoned in life and seasoned in the faith. You know Jesus. You have loved him for a decade or more and you obey him better than most. You should be fathering younger believers. I mean it. I really mean it. Mature Christians, mature other Christians. Fathers in the faith reproduce that faith. So do this. Find someone younger in the church to disciple. Commit to walking intentionally with just one person this year. Read the Bible together pray and share life together. Younger believers need that in order to grow and mature. By the way, so do you, so do you. There will come a point in your spiritual life where you will stop growing in the Christian faith if you are not willing to reproduce what you have learned in others. I talk to mature Christians all the time who feel like they are in a spiritual drought. God just doesn't seem as interesting or as exciting as he used to be once. The Bible feels stale and prayer feels dull. Is that familiar? You know what I found? Eight out of 10 times that problem gets fixed when a person begins to actively disciple a younger believer that should tell you something fundamental about the Christian faith. The gospel is structured in such a way that you will at some point plateau in your faith unless you are committed to reproducing. I mean, that's what Jesus taught, right? He continuously gave his disciples teaching and instruction, and then he sent them out to reproduce those teachings. So, however unequipped you may feel to do that right now, I can almost guarantee you that the disciples felt that even more so. But here's the thing, they did it anyway. They did it anyway because they were convinced that the knowledge of him who is from the beginning was far too good to just keep to themselves. That's what they realized. The point is this, I think. I think John wants fathers and mothers among us to persevere in the faith. You have this beautiful seasoned knowledge of Jesus and John wants you to continue and press into that knowledge. But in addition, I think John is also calling you to help the church by your knowledge. I think he wants you to know that God has, over the course of your life, produced in you this incredible storehouse of wisdom, resilience, and holiness that is necessary to guide this church, your church. So use that now for God's glory. Congregation, younger people, honor these seasoned and aged veterans of the faith. And I don't just mean the likes of Howard McPhee. These words from John are written for the fathers and mothers in our midst, yes. But they were also written to be read in your hearing. It is for your benefit also that you know that these men and women can be trusted with the knowledge of Jesus and the spiritual care of the church. So get to know these fathers and mothers. Make them feel welcome and more at home in what feels like a very young church. Learn from them. Listen to them, and let them speak truth into your life. This is John's second point. You know, Third and finally, John concludes by addressing the young men and women among us. If fathers are those individuals who are both seasoned in life and in the faith, then we think, maybe, young men probably refers to those individuals who are growing up in life and in the faith. John speaks to these young men and women in verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. What's he saying here? I think John acknowledges that there's a spiritual enemy at work in the world. The Bible calls him Satan. He is the evil one. And the Bible says that he is right now waging an invisible, unseen spiritual war against both God and his people. Now, for our purposes, we don't have time to delve too deeply into this topic today, but rest assured, John will actually come back to this more fully later in his letter. For the time being, however, I think John wants us to simply know that the Christian has a sure and certain victory over Satan. How is that possible? Well, it's because God has a sure and certain victory over Satan. You see, in Jesus' life and earthly ministry, he resisted the devil and stood firm. The Bible says that though Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, he did not sin. He was perfect and sinless, and yet he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sinners. that By doing so, he might rescue us from the hands of this spiritual enemy. Men and women, John wants you to know that if you have trusted in Jesus, you are free. You're free. And the evidence of that freedom is that you now have this extraordinary spiritual power to obey God, live as you ought to, and resist the devil, just like Christ your Savior did. 1 John 3, 8-9 says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, but no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. John is saying that if you have trusted in Jesus, you are no longer under the power and influence of the evil one. And what that means is that you have this ability now from God to resist and fight against the sin in your life. Now, let me tell you, that is tremendous news. That is tremendous news. You have to understand that for John, the gospel is not just forgiveness of sins. That is good news, certainly, but it's not good enough. It's not. For John, the gospel means power over sin. It means radical ability that is now available to the Christian to overcome the sin in their lives, resist the devil, and walk as Jesus walked. I mean, I think that's why John can make these audacious, almost contradictory claims in his letter. He says things like, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Like, really? Really, John? Yes, really. Yes, really. But... If anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I mean, just think about that for a moment. John is so utterly convinced with every fiber of his being that we actually have the power in Jesus to resist sin. That's what he believes. That's what he believes. And yet, he is also equally convinced that when we fail to do that, we still have the forgiveness of sins. Grace Trono, you need to hear clearly that the gospel offers you both those realities in Jesus. But most of us functionally only believe and practice the latter. And that's why we need to hear this text because in John 14 John explains that there's a kind of strength now available to the believer to overcome the devil and all his temptations. He says you are strong and the word of God abides in you. What is this word? What does John mean? Well, if you read the rest of John's letter, you'll discover that the word of God takes on two meanings. It is both the spiritual presence of Jesus that he promised to give believers there is also the summation of everything that Jesus taught preserved for those believers. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit and it is the Holy Scriptures. And John is saying that a combination of both of these abiding in a person is what strengthens them to overcome the evil one and all his temptations. All Christians need this kind of strength. No question. But it would seem that in John's mind, young men and women have a special need. I think it goes without saying that young people can find themselves in all kinds of difficult and complex life situations. The temptation to compromise on what you believe and how you behave is so exceedingly strong in our city. But take heart, John says, because you are strong in Christ. Young men and women, you need to know that through Jesus, you have overcome the evil one. He no longer owns you. He cannot control you. His power over you is gone. It's gone, but he will still lie to you. He will deceive you and he will try to lead you astray from the gospel. He will tell you things that are not true of you and things that are not true of your life. He will give you idols and promise you every pleasure. He will tempt you to sin and he will ensnare you if he can. And when you succumb to his temptation, he will accuse you to your very face. This is the foe that you are up against. Men and women, I think John wants you to know that you are strong in Christ, that is for certain but for the sake of your spiritual well-being, you must continue to find strength where that strength has been granted to you. It is expressly in God's word and in God's spirit. Implications. Men and women, it is vital that you draw strength from God's word because it has been given to you as a source of strength. Psalm 119 asks this, how can a young man keep his way pure? And the psalmist answers, by guarding it according to your word. In fact, he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Translation, young men and women have a special need to read, study, and memorize the Bible for strength. Your fathers and mothers know this already, but they had to learn it just like you do. You have to understand that throughout your life, you'll constantly be bombarded by the voice of the world and the voice of the devil. Unless you have a consistent habit of hearing the voice of your God amidst the clamor, you will falter. So draw strength daily from the scriptures and let it abide in you. Second implication, draw strength from God's spirit also. God has given you his Holy Spirit to abide in you. And the Spirit's job, men and women, is to assist you in living the Christian life. Namely, the Spirit has been given to you to help you fight against sin and to help you walk in obedience to God. But when you fail to do those things, and sometimes you will, It is also the Spirit who reassures you of God's continued abundant love and forgiveness that is overflowing for you. That's what the Spirit does. So whatever your needs might be at whatever times, you ask the Spirit to give you the strength to overcome. Trust Him, lean on Him, and He will deliver you. Because look, John is writing all of these things, whether to children, fathers, or young men, so that the church as a whole might stand firm. He wants you to know that in Christ, you have the forgiveness of your sins, you have the knowledge of God, and you have a sure and certain victory over the evil one. So now, you lay hold of those things, practice them in your life, and stand firm in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to the church. We pray that you help us to lay up these truths in our lives, that we would believe them and cherish them, and we would stand upon the victory that you, Jesus, have accomplished on our behalf. We pray that you would give us real assurance in the midst of our spiritual crisis, and that you would also give us the assurance and the strength to help others within the church. We pray and thank you for this word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ordinarily, we have some time for some questions, but I've been told that our service is quite packed. We have Sunday school after, so uh, we need to get it moving. But if you'd like to chat after the service, I'll be available to, to talk with you. Um, there's also an email address that you can email me, tarak at and I'd be happy to engage with you. Uh, but for now, we're going to go to our Song of Response.